What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome back to the Breakline Arena. It is Sophia and I play for Team Breakline. And this is Chelsea Conley here also playing for Team Breakline. Hey everybody, Bethany Coates. I'm delighted to be here with two of my favorite people, Soap and Chelsea. Why don't we jump right into who we're talking to today, Bethany? I know it was a really cool conversation. I had the pleasure of interviewing Sue Bostrom and Sue Barsamian. These two tech mavens are such hitters, and it was so much fun to be able to sit down with both of them at the same time. They're also close friends. In background, Sue Bostrom served as chief marketing officer of Cisco. She is now on the boards of world-changing companies like ServiceNow, GitLab, Samsara, Outreach, Sue Barsanian was the chief sales and marketing officer of HPE. She sits on boards of companies like Box and Gainsight. These two have so much wisdom to share. We spent a lot of time talking about their careers, how they found success, the role that ambition and courage and even imposter syndrome played as they pursued their interests. And it was really, really fascinating and inspiring to learn from them. Yeah. And it's a really interesting conversation because you can tell you all know each other pretty well and it's entertaining in that way. But you're absolutely right. They share so much wisdom. I know Sue Bostrom mentions at one point learning from failure. And that's a big thing we teach at Breakline, as well as Sue Barsamian She's also from the Midwest, which they're both from the Midwest. Huge fan of that. But she also talks about studying in Switzerland and how that changed her perspective on diversity in general. So really interesting conversation. You did a great job leading it. And I'm really excited for our listeners to hear what's up. So why don't we jump right in? Let's head over there. We will see you guys on the other side. Welcome to the Breakline community. I'm so delighted to be able to kick off this conversation with two women that I've looked up to for quite a long time. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline, and I'm here with Sue Bostrom and Sue Barsamian. Sue Bostrom was Executive VP and Chief Marketing Officer at Cisco and now sits on a number of boards, and she'll tell us more about that. Sue Barsamian was Chief Sales and Marketing Officer at HPE Software and also sits on a number of boards. And so Sue and Sue, so delighted to have you with us today. Thank you for joining the Breakline community. It's great to be here. Thank you, Bethany. Yeah, thanks, Bethany. Sue Bostrom, could we start with you? I'd love for you to share some of the highlights of your career with our listeners. Will you tell them a little bit more about your background? Sure. Well, in getting ready for this, I realized that I think I have worked in high tech for 35 or 40 years now. I was so fortunate to start, though, at the age of 12. It's <laughs> a joke, obviously. But I've had the chance to work up and down the supply chain working with semiconductors, networking software, and in a wide variety of functions from consulting to marketing to services and even government affairs. 
My most significant operational role was the 14 years that I spent as EVP and Chief Marketing Officer at Cisco Systems. And over those 14 years, it was really a fundamental growth period in tech overall, but especially at Cisco. We grew from $7 billion in revenue to $40 billion, and we grew from 10,000 employees to 70,000 employees. So Mm. in addition to seeing that level of scaling, as well as a couple of major downturns in the economy, it was really a phenomenal learning experience for me. I now dedicate my time to board services, you mentioned, for predominantly software companies. Most of them are SaaS companies. And over the last decade or so, I've served on about 13 corporate boards. Today, I'm on four public company boards and on three private company boards. So I guess I'm sort of retired in some folks' mind, but it doesn't feel like that on a day-to-day basis. I would agree. She's not retired. (laughs) (laughs) And Sue Bostrom, I'll call out, you sit on two boards that partner with Breakline, Outreach and Samsara. Oh, well, of course, um, they're my two favorite then, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And Sue Barsamian, same question for you. I'd love for you to share as we kick off. I'd love for you to share a little bit about your career and the path that you've walked to date. Yes, absolutely. Well, I also started my career in tech a long time ago. I'm older than Sue Bostrom. So it was 40 years ago. And I came to Silicon Valley from the middle of Kansas, a very unsophisticated electrical engineer. And I've had four incredible decades, 37 of which I was an operator. And I actually started my board career just recently. Mm. So I've done it for about three years, got some great coaching and advice from Sue Bostrom. Mm. And at the board level, I sit on six boards, three public company and three private, all in the tech, enterprise SaaS and cybersecurity space. From an operating perspective, where the majority of my time has been, I guess some things were consistent. It was all tech and Mm. it was almost all enterprise software. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it is a real mix. I did large companies like Sue. I did HP, which was 330,000 employees, Mm -hmm. 130 billion in revenue. But I've also been employee number 18 Mm -hmm. and taken small companies through IPOs. And I've learned very different things for those respective, very different stages. And I've done a lot of different roles, much like Sue. I think I I counted it up the other day and I've had 21 different jobs, not Mm. companies, thank goodness, but jobs. And it's been, I've run sales teams, I've run marketing teams, I've run product lines and business units, I've run operations. And that variety has been one of the blessings of the 40 years. Mm. Well, I think another really interesting element of the conversation is that the two of you are also good friends, but fairly recent friends. We're actually all situated right now in Park City. And I think the two of you met here rather than in Silicon Valley, which is where you spent physically spent most of your careers. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. I think we first met in California when we were both moving to Mm, Park City. And in fact, we just had our three-year anniversary dinner with our husbands at the same restaurant (laughs) that we got together three years ago when we were all meeting each other. So it was totally fun. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah, it's been great. So with Breakline, as you all know, we're an education company and candidates apply to Breakline. And there's one question on the application that I really love. I think it's the most important question that we ask. 
And that's talk to us about a forging experience. And the reason why we ask it is we're really interested in those tough moments that you have transcended, learned from, grown from. And that's where we gain a lot of insight into the folks who apply to Breakline and become part of our community. So I'd love to actually pose that question to both of you. Could you share a forging experience? You both had really long and interesting and high impact careers, and we're going to dig into that more. We'd love for you to share one moment that you learned a tremendous amount from and transcended. I have quite a few of those moments. And I do have one at Cisco, but I thought I would rather share first my experience in terms of growing up and then ending up Mm. at business school, because I thought maybe it would relate more to the audience here. But like Sue, I grew up in the Midwest in a suburb of Chicago. My mom didn't go to college. My dad didn't go to high school. He was a farmer from a family of 10 kids. I went to the University of Illinois. I majored in business so I could get a job or find a job when I got out of school. My first job was with AT&T selling telephone systems. And I was actually, my husband and we got married at age 22, which I know is quite rare today. And for work reasons, we were living in Portland, Oregon. I never lived on the West Coast. I was on a business trip with Compaq, the company I was working for down in the Bay Area, stumbled across Stanford University. And I said, wow, this would be a really great place to go to business school. Doesn't this sound interesting? So anyway, I was so fortunate in 1984 to get into Stanford, not realizing how really difficult it was. But I was such a not cool person in that class because, I mean, I, I mean, part of it's personal, obviously, but there were other things like tech was not cool in 1984. Here I was coming from AT&T and Compaq. It was all about consulting and investment banking. I was from the Midwest. Most people were not. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I really, really felt like a fish out of water there. And fortunately, I did find some of my kindred spirits and my husband, who was not in business school, got really involved with all of the athletic programs. And so he he was like the ringer for the baseball team and stuff. So like I made friends through that. But but it was just, I was married, everyone was single. I really felt like there was a whole nother world that existed that I had not only not been part of, I didn't even know it existed at all. Yes. And so- I think it was one of those things, back to your point, Bethany, that whenever I got into those situations again, where I felt like I'm in over my head, I'm not as good, I don't stack Mm -hmm. up, I don't have the right, you know, that I would just go back to that and say, it didn't happen right away, but eventually I found my spot. And Mm -hmm. even today, I think about it sometimes where I say, if you were to survey that business school class the first year and say, well, what do you think about Sue Bostrom? They'd say, who's that? (laughs) Really? Like we barely know she's here. And then now I think about my career and the relationships I have with my business school classmates. And I'm like, wow, I did use that as a platform to really transform my career and who I am as an individual and how I think about making an impact in the world. Mm -hmm. I love that story so much, Sue. And I think it transcends so many people's experience. We've talked about this. I grew up in rural Vermont and I wound up at Princeton for college. The only people from my high school who went to Princeton ever in history were me and my siblings. (laughs) So it's like very weird. And I had no idea how to engage in small talk. When you talk about being a fish out of water, there are all kinds of unspoken norms and rules in these spaces that when you're not coming from that space, it can just take some time to 
figure out what is happening and and like how to engage. Just to add to that point, when Mm -hmm. I got into business school and called my dad and told him, he called my uncle who had gone to high school and worked in business, who called me to tell me not to go to business school. Yes. And that, you know, we thought it was a big mistake. I had a good job, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Some 40 years later, I talked to my uncle. This was the uncle who, by the way, saved a scrapbook of every article he read about me. And, And I said to him, I'm like, Uncle Bob, love you to death, but Lordy, why did you discourage me from going to business school? Yes. And he said, because I didn't want you to be hurt. I That's knew right. that we were not hiring women very often in business. And when we did, they weren't treated right. And I wanted mm-hmm. to protect you. And mm-hmm. what I tell people is sometimes the people closest to you will mm-hmm. discourage you from taking risks because they don't want you to be hurt. That's and, right. And sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to separate like the love from what you're willing to do and, and make your decisions in that way. Absolutely. And that particular comment, we actually hear a lot about 30% of breakliners are either immigrants or first-gen American citizens. We hear that a lot about their parents who would say, why are you turning down the job offer from Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, the big, stable, visible brand and going to this growth company that nobody's ever heard of before? And there's a lot of fear and the feeling of wanting to protect the people that we love. Sue Barsemian, same question for you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about a forging experience from your life as well. I'm going to go very similar to Sue Bostrom's. First of all, I love that story, Sue. I'm not sure I've heard you tell it like that. And mine's pretty similar. I skipped one step before I headed out to Silicon Valley from Kansas, which is that my advisor at Kansas State, where I did my engineering degree, who coincidentally, I had dinner with last week in Kansas. Mm. After all this time, we still stay in touch. He encouraged me to apply for a post-grad engineering program at one of the best technical universities in Europe, which happened to be in Zurich, Switzerland. Mm. And I was 21 years old. In the States, I had only really traveled to Disney World once. And I didn't have a passport and certainly had never been out of the country. Mm -hmm. And I applied for this scholarship and I got it. And I landed in Switzerland taking engineering courses in German Mm. and living in a what I was kind of like a boarding house with 12 other girls from all over the world. And the only rule in the house was you had to speak German because everybody's native language was different. And I spent the first six months talking like I was in third grade because that was my level of German. But I absolutely loved it. And it totally changed my Mm -hmm. life. I went from being this very unsophisticated, sheltered Midwestern kid to uh, really... Yeah, appreciating just mass diversity. And that has changed my life in that whether it's my friends or the jobs I take, I always do global. I always do diverse. I like Mm. lots of different types of people. I have been a minority in a foreign environment Mm. and talked like a third grader. And I developed a ton of empathy because of that. And I think it has really shaped the way I interact, because I know what it's like to be in a foreign environment and be the odd person Mm -hmm, out. mm -hmm. I love both of the stories that you told, because it's clear that we can stay in our spaces and stay cozy and stay 
comfy with what's familiar, but we can also grow so far beyond that if we're just willing to give ourselves the shot. And you all both had a shot and you took it. And I think it's just incredibly inspiring to see how far you went with the opportunity that was presented to you so early in your lives. I want to bring us up to present day. You both serve on amazing boards. We talked about some of Sue Bostrom's boards, Sue Barsamian, you're on boards like Gainsight and Box. I mean, these are big, big companies that are having world-changing impact. And I'd love for you to talk about how you show up as a member of the board. You gained so much leadership expertise in addition to functional expertise in your operating roles. How do you apply that in your service on these boards? Subar Samian, maybe you could go first. Yeah, it's a transition. You don't show up on a board the same way you show up as an operator, right? You don't go into that level of operational detail, except by exception when they ask you to, because they know that you can have some site meetings and add value. But otherwise, it's really at the strategic level, making sure that the company is on track and taking what is usually for most board members decades of pattern matching experiences Mm -hmm. across different companies, large and small and different situations, good and bad. And -hmm. your ability to take what has happened to you in your career and help the company hopefully avoid and hopefully capitalize on Mm -hmm. similar situations, whether it's, gosh, let's not miss this market transition. It looks like we're having some issues in go-to-market. What do we need to do? And is the business that we're in significant enough to sustain the growth rate that we need and the profit profile that we need three to five years from now, right? You're really Mm -hmm. at that level as opposed to in the day-to-day. And Sue Bostrom, this type of macro level work, do you find it as engaging and satisfying as being in the thick of the action as an operator? Is it a different type of experience? Well, you've really put your finger on something, Bethany. I mean, my philosophy about being a board member is to lean in, but keep my fingers Mm -hmm. out. And you know me, Bethany, well enough to know that something super hard. (laughs) But the thing I miss the most about board work is having my team like mm-hmm. all of us, I'm sure on the podcast can relate to, you know, when you have that team camaraderie, that team spirit. And of course, as a board member, you are a team, but it's a little bit different. It's not the folks that you manage and nurture and see develop in exactly the same way. So one of the things that I like to do that I have the opportunity to do is usually chair the compensation committee for the board. And as part mm-hmm. of that, I do a comprehensive CEO review every year. So speak to all the board members, all of mm-hmm. all of his or her direct reports And I love, absolutely love the opportunity to give feedback and coaching to that CEO because many of them, it's a private company, they're the founders, it's probably their first CEO role ever, it's their maybe first time hopefully working for a public company as the company goes public. So it is such an honor to me to speak with them, to provide insight into how they can continue to develop and grow. And so that's been one way for me to hopefully add a lot of value and also fulfill my desire to really make an impact on individuals. Mm-hmm. And I imagine when you're in a position to provide feedback, sometimes those can be delicate conversations as well. It takes a lot of 
trust to be able to engage at that level with a CEO. There was a recent McKinsey article that highlighted that high-functioning boards have to have a management team that feels safe, also sharing bad news. Sue Barsamian, do you have any experience with that? When you think about your role on the board, how pivotal it is because you're operating at that macro level, being able to build the rapport and build that foundation of trust so that you can engage on the tough issues. I think it's critically important. And I really have, with the exception of one, I only have positive experience, but that's by design because Mm -hmm. I do believe that's so fundamental that I don't join boards unless that culture is in place. Mm -hmm. And we have full transparency and the CEOs come to the board meeting and sometimes actually over-rotate towards the bad because they want the help. And I think that's super healthy. We had one situation where the CEO wasn't transparent and we made a change Mm -hmm. to a new CEO. It is a very hard one to get around if it's not in place. It reminds me, Mary Barra, who said, we're going to change the people or we're going to change the people. You know, when she was talking about that big (laughs) cultural evolution that they needed to do. Yeah. There are so many women who are up and coming executives now in tech who really aspire to join boards, but they haven't been tapped yet to do so. And Sue Barsamian, you were actually talking about how this has been a fairly recent chapter in your career, although you could have engaged much earlier if you had chosen to do so. Thoughts from both of you on getting involved, getting engaged, putting your hand up, being visible for this type of role as early as possible where it makes sense for other women. Sue Bostrom, do you want to start? Sure. Well, I was super fortunate myself of serving on a public company board. Oh gosh, it had to be my first one, I think was 18 years ago or something. And I would say 15, 20 years ago is really when companies started to say, we want to have more diverse boards. They weren't required to, Mm -hmm. but the best companies were thinking that way, fortunately. What I tell women or men that are looking for future board opportunities is number one, do your operational job the absolute best Mm -hmm. that you can, because Mm -hmm. that skill set that you're building and that experience is what other companies are going to want to tap into. The second thing I say is look at nonprofit opportunities. My favorite board opportunities have been nonprofits. I was on the board of Stanford Adult Hospital for nine years, and now I'm on the board of the Children's Hospital, almost seven years in there, and served on the board of Georgetown University for six years. So super fulfilling work, and it really gives you good experience about how boards operate and what the various committees do, how you can really make a difference, that kind of thing. So I think there's a number of ways of starting to get yourself educated on board service, even before maybe it's exactly the right time to join a board. Mm -hmm. And see that comment around pursuing nonprofit boards is so important. I think I actually met you when you were serving on the board of Stanford Business School at least 10 years ago. And I mean, we all know opportunities come through our networks. And so when you're serving on a nonprofit board, you're just as likely to meet someone who can pull you into the next opportunity. So that sounds like a great first step. Sue Barsamian, anything that you would add here? Let me just reiterate, I think the stats are 70% comes through the network Mm and 30% will come through some of the more traditional channels like the search firms. So the network is super important. I tell people, be proactive. 
you've got to have, as Sue said, operating experience that is relevant for a board. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when people talk to me about it, I'm like, okay, you're not ready, but you can get yourself ready. And these are the things to do to get yourself ready. But then if you're still an operator and you're going to do a small number of boards, be really selective and really proactive Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. what your target zone is and then make outreaches. Mm -hmm. I did that. I decided the sorts of companies that I wanted to target for my board work. I created lists of those companies. I looked at whether I knew people in the C-suite or people on the board Mm -hmm. in that process. I talked to Sue Bostrom, Mm -hmm. who was super helpful. And I was very intentional about the board's that I joined. And I didn't expect that a board was just going to land on my head. And they don't at the beginning. They do later once you're on a couple boards, but they don't at the beginning. Sue Barsamian, I'm so delighted that you raised that point. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got from one of my girlfriends was ask for what you want. I think we wait too long for someone to notice us or for someone to serve something up on a silver platter. And instead we need to get after it and request what we want and do so unapologetically. So I'm really glad that you raised that point. Bethany, if I could just Um, maybe add one other point to that is I think it's very important to write down your value Mm. proposition and Mm. really be honest about it. What am I really Mm -hmm. good at? What am I not? What are my experiences? What's relevant? What's going on in the world right now? What do I know about those things? So that whether it's a job opportunity or board opportunity, you really have a good handle on what value you can bring. Because I totally believe in asking for what you want. I also Mm -hmm. believe, and just to add to that, is that to be really clear about the value you add to a company or to an individual. Because again, everybody's super busy and saying, you know, this is what I'd like and here's how I think I can provide value to what you're trying to accomplish is really, Mm -hmm. I think that differentiates among other conversations those people may be having. Well, it's such an important point, Sue Bostrom, and I'm glad that you made it because, so I'm thinking about the communities that Breakline serves, one of which is veterans. And in the military, there's this really wonderful cultural norm that's just put me in coach. I'll do anything, whatever it takes. I'm happy to do it. I'll sweep the floors just to be part of the team. We hear that all the time. I just interviewed Katie Burke recently. She's the chief people officer at HubSpot. And she was saying that the exact opposite approach is actually more helpful when you're going after an opportunity that you want in tech. She said, please don't make me do the work for you. Translate for me, educate me, help me understand how you're going to contribute from day one. So I'm really delighted that you made that point as well. It's clearly so important whether your role is an entry-level role all the way up to your board service. I want to now roll back to the years where you were leading big teams inside of Cisco, inside of HPE. And I want to talk about some of those experiences that you all had that set you up so well to join boards and add value as directors now. And I'd love for you to both share, when you think back about the highlights of your career, especially in those earlier career moments, in addition to being executives, you both also raised families. I'd love for you to talk about in those busiest times, what accomplishments do you look back on that give you the greatest sense of pride? And Sue Barsamian, maybe we could start with you. Yeah. 
Gosh, if you go back to early career, I think it's safe to say we were all hanging on by a thread. Yes, Life was complicated. And at some point, you just had to embrace that complexity. From a career perspective, my greatest senses of accomplishments were the turnarounds that I did. Mm. I'm an engineer who never worked in engineering, but I never shook the DNA that came Mm. with being an engineer, which is I love to solve problems. And I'm happiest when I get a problem to solve. And Mm -hmm. then I get a team and an approach and gain some success. Sometimes it takes in a big company like HP, it took several years sometimes to solve really nasty problems. But in smaller companies, you could get gratification in a year. And Mm -hmm. when I look at the teams, the jobs, it was those where it was pretty broken when we Mm. started. And you have to work double time, stress is higher. But honestly, when I get together with those team members today, those are the best stories. And everybody agrees that those were the times when you accelerated your learning Mm. curve, because Mm -hmm. you had to, because Mm -hmm. you didn't know what the heck you were doing. You weren't quite really sure when you started. Mm-hmm. how you were going to fix this, but you broke it down. I have a saying, mile by mile, it's a trial. Yard by yard, it's hard, but inch by inch, it's a cinch. Mm. And I just apply that, which is, it looks like an insurmountable problem, mm-hmm. but I'm going to break it down. I'm yes. going to decide what we can do in the next six months. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then we're going to go do the next six months. And it's really gratifying Mm -hmm. to look back when you've accomplished the fix. Mm -hmm. And I would say those are my best moments. I love that advice so much because I do think that there can be a tendency to be paralyzed by the enormity of a challenge and to just stall because it feels so difficult, but really being okay with just start. I think that's even advice that writers give each other, like just start (laughs) And, and then you can find your way rather than feeling like you have to take on the entire task at one time. Sue Bostrom, thoughts from you, highlights of achievements of which you're most proud. So I'll share with you a couple of examples from Cisco. One was an opportunity and one was much more of a, of a turnaround situation. At Cisco in the late 1990s, this was, of course, the beginning of the internet boom. And so the company was deploying internet applications itself, such as e-commerce, supply chain, et cetera. And the real opportunity was for us to share those best practices with our customers, because if they adopted more internet applications, then of course they would need to buy more networking equipment, which made that internet connectivity possible. So when I was hired at the company, I was hired to do two jobs. One was to create this consulting group, brand new thing. The other was to run services marketing, which was a very large team, obviously to do the marketing of our big services arm. So my first three, four months into the job, at the end of that period of time, I had to give a presentation to John Chambers, the CEO and the management team about the progress that I'd made. And so I gave, I don't know, probably had a, let's say I had a 50 page deck, 48 pages were about services marketing and all the phenomenal work I was doing and turning around the team and we were adding so much value. And then I had like two or three pages about this new group called the Internet Business Solutions Consulting Group. And at the end of the presentation, John Chambers in his West Virginia accent said to me, well, you sure do know a lot about services marketing, 
but we didn't hire you to do services marketing. We hired you to build this whole new capability for the company. So after I turned into a pool of liquid and slid all over the floor, (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, how did I miss that? And I swear, if you ask John Chambers today, what do you think of Sue Bostrom? He'll say, well, sort of a slow start there at the beginning. (laughs) But the lesson I took away from it is to know who your real boss was. So I was listening to, I had a couple of layers of bosses who were like, yeah, services marketing is super important. But the CEO, it's always important to know what the senior people think because he knew what the long-term strategic value was to the company and he knew it was this new consulting capability. And so needless to say, I refocused myself pretty quickly on that. The other quick opportunity I'll share is that in about 2005, 2006, again, John came to me with the opportunity of taking on all of marketing at Cisco and becoming the chief marketing officer. Well, marketing was struggling a little bit is what I'll say. We were not really super well aligned with product at the time. And we had acquired a number of companies like WebEx, we'd moved into the data center, et cetera. But yet the market and the investors just viewed us as a hardware company. They didn't view us as software. They didn't view us as moving up the technology stack. So this was another situation where one of my peers at the company, a long-term guy said, why would you take that on? Your reputation is so great. You've accomplished so much at Cisco. Like, just let it be. I mean, let someone else take that on. And anyway, at any rate, what I ended up doing was taking on marketing and we ended up transforming the brand of the company. We increased brand value by about 30%. We went from Mm. number 18 as the most valuable brands in the world to number 13, finally beat out Louis Vuitton, which I thought was super important. Mm. I thought a technology company (laughs) should definitely be more, I love Louis Vuitton, but I thought we definitely should be more valuable than a handbag line, you know, just thought that was critical. So It really was an opportunity not only to learn additional skill sets for myself and the whole science of marketing, et cetera, but also a way to just uplift the company and how we thought about ourselves and the people within the company. So it was really a transformative opportunity for me. Both of those stories that you all told remind me of John Donahoe, who's the CEO of Nike, who was kind enough to speak in Breakline. And at the time, he said, think back on your life and just for a second, think about the moments of which you derive the most pride. And he said, undoubtedly, these are moments of adversity. And we spend a lot of energy and time trying to avoid the hard stuff. But that's where we learn the most. And that's where we grow the most. You're both talking about turnarounds being some of your biggest highlights from your career. It was really, really hard in the moment, but so gratifying when you push past it and get to the other side. I would love to transition now and talk about something you wish you had known earlier in your career that you know now. And I'll give you an example from me. I realized, I think I was almost 40 when I realized that I can do whatever I want at any time. I can make whatever choice I want to make at any time and move my career in whatever direction that I was excited about at any time. I didn't have to wait for approval. I didn't have to wait for a reference. I didn't have to wait for someone to open a door. I could open the door myself. And it might be difficult and it might take resilience and I might have to face some no's, but it was under my control. And I wish I had known that as a 21, 22 year old. Sue Barsamian, thoughts here as you look back on that younger self, taking those risks, living abroad, speaking in a different language, You talked about being a minority in so many different situations. 
things that you know now that you wish you had known then? Yeah. You know what? Maybe I'll actually roll forward from those times to the times when we talked about it a little bit earlier, when life really is hanging by the thread. When you're working, you've been at it long enough that the jobs are bigger, which means you're working longer hours, you're traveling, you have often a young family, Mm -hmm. and you're just trying to figure out how to keep it all together. And probably many people can relate. And I think what I would tell my younger self is sleep more because sleep Hmm. helps a lot (laughs) of many situations. Mm -hmm. And also perfection is the enemy of good. Be willing to let things go. Mm -hmm. And if you've got to have more perfection at work, you don't need total perfection on the personal life side, right? I have a friend who I adore who says outsource everything but love right? Mm. Just let it go, right? If you love to cook, great. If you don't love to cook, still have your friends over and have takeout food. And don't worry if your placemats match your napkins. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. And letting those things go, Mm -hmm. some things go, is the only way. And sometimes you just learn it the hard way. I'll tell you a funny story. As I was trying to get better at letting things go, and I remember my kids were quite young and I was traveling And I decided that I would stop blow drying my hair Mm -hmm. because I no longer had time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, it takes 15 minutes. Like you guys can see my hair is not overly complicated, but I have a lot of it. So I decided I would just have to go to work with my hair wet, which Mm -hmm. I did. And it turns out that everybody in the office thought I was some superwoman who was swimming before work every morning. (laughs) Love it. Work to your advantage. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's just so I'll leave it at hysterical. That. <laughs> Thank you, Super Samian, for sharing. I know, but it really does sometimes come down to these 15 minute increments when you're that busy, yeah. you know, saving yourself a couple minutes by letting the smaller things go. Such great advice. Sue Bostrom, thoughts from you on this one? Well, the thing that I say most often especially to young women, is don't opt out. Ask for what you need. I just remember an experience when I was working you know, 24-7, as Sue mentioned, and I had three children and I was working full time. And there was just a day when I, I just got to the end of my rope. I just said, this is just, it's just too much. Mm-hmm. There's a saying, you know, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And as you know, right. you know, There's always one that's not happy. So I just had reached the end of my rope and I said, I just can't do this. And I remember going into my boss's office, into John's office and just telling him this was it, that I just, you know, needed to leave. And I hated to, but I needed to. And he used this baseball analogy and he said, it's okay. I'd rather have you on the bench than at shortstop. Because if I have you at the bench right now, then I can always put you back in later. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up working four days a week, which back Mm. then was really radical. It doesn't sound so crazy Mm. now, but I, and then I had one day when I'd be at home with the kids and it made all the difference. And I stayed in the game and then I came back and I had a bunch more really fun at bats after that. So what I really encourage people to do is to not just ask for what you want, but ask for what you need. And that could Mm -hmm. be at work or it could be at home. And if you are a solid performer contributing people don't want to lose you, especially in today's environment. 
someone mm-hmm. said to me, you know, yes, there is a war for talent and talent has won. I mean, right now mm-hmm. there is such an amazing demand. So I really believe it's important to communicate what you need, understand what the win-win is, and really find ways for you to stay engaged and involved and allow the company or the organization that you're with to help you out when you do need that help. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. And Sue Barsamian's comment, outsource everything but love. Sue Bostrom, I hope you don't mind me telling this story. You and your husband had me and my husband over for dinner and we were had the nicest time and you made the most delicious turkey chili. <laughs> and so much so that I asked for your recipe and my daughters now ask me to make turkey chili all the time. <laughs> but you forgot the beans forgot in your turkey season. chili. <laughs> I was, it, was, it was in the middle of COVID. So I don't know, you know, who knows. Totally. What we're but I, yeah, I, I sent no, you the but, recipe and then I was like, I look at this recipe and I think I forgot to put the beans in. <laughs> But I do, I do love, I do love cooking. I mean, that's been one of the great benefits of the pandemic, at least for our family is that my three kids and my son-in-law to be and the three dogs, you know, we were all in Park Mm. City together for three or four months. And I really got to be the stay-at-home mom that I never was and and, and in many ways didn't want to be, but I I made up for it. Cooking, cleaning, all those things was so fun. Yes. And to Sue Barsavian's point, like the beans were beside the point. It was a lovely evening. It did not matter one iota. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We have just a couple (laughs) minutes left. And I'd love to get an inside sneak peek from both of you. You're now, again, on the boards of a number of different, really interesting, fast-growing companies, companies that are changing the world and would love to just hear from you the most important trends and or the most important companies that you encourage the Breakline community to keep an eye out for over the next maybe two to five years. Super Samian, would love to start with you. Yeah. Well, look, you know, the world has changed. I think remote work and hybrid work is here to stay. And I think that creates new opportunities and it disrupts existing companies who have mm-hmm. models that don't transition And so Mm -hmm. what we're doing at the board level and what I do as I look at new companies is I look at whether I think that business model is sustainable and will thrive in the new world. Mm -hmm. Some of the things I'm super excited about, which I also think is very disruptive, is the incorporation of AI Mm -hmm. to fuel and completely change business processes. And Mm -hmm. in the boards that I'm on, we're doing that business process by business process. There are also whole companies that are doing it. And I think that the opportunity for advancement and disruption through AI is very significant. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the final thing I would say is this whole movement around product-led growth, which is simplify, virality. Customers don't want complex anymore. They want a product Mm -hmm. that is easy to try, easy to buy, easy to use, and easy to get value from. Mm -hmm. And that is really hitting some legacy companies hard because Mm -hmm. they're too complicated. And so as I look at new opportunities, I really look at the companies who are getting that model right. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sue. And earlier in the podcast, we've hosted folks like Ali Ghazi, the CEO of Databricks, and Satyan Sangani, CEO of Alation. So For folks who are interested in learning about some of the companies that are in that AI and data space that Sue Barsamian was talking about, 
Sue Bostrom, would love to hear from you trends that you would encourage brakeliners to keep an eye on over the next two to five years and or companies that you find really interesting. Yeah, well, just to add maybe to a point that Sue made, it's interesting. I joined the board of GitLab about a little over three years ago. And when I did, my peers in the industry were saying, you know, this really great company, they develop a developer platform for software developers to write and share code, but they said it's a hundred percent remote workforce. Mm-hmm. That concept is just lots of questions about that. And sure enough, here we are after the pandemic and it's now the, everyone wants to understand their best practices from remote work. So that is definitely, <laughs> definitely here to stay. Just to add a few things, I think one is this digital transformation of workflows. So I think about the work that we focus on at ServiceNow and every single function is looking at how they can make work easier for people and more intuitive by using technology. So that clearly is happening. The other thing is the emergence of the developer, the software developer outside of the CIO's purview. So this is the idea that one of the folks on the podcast here could be working, developing software for a business unit or a function in a company, and that reports right up to that business unit. So the power that a developer has to really transform how business is done is really interesting, but it's also highly distributed now across large companies. And that, of course, raises the issue about security. So, you know, at the end of the day, all of this digital transformation and everything that we do We only use it and we only do it because we feel as if it has a high degree of security and what we're doing is going to be protected. So that is job number one at every board that I'm involved in, just to make sure that what we do is protecting both our company, but also our customers. Mm. Sue Bostrom, Sue Barsamian, thank you so much. What a treat to spend the last hour with both of you. So appreciate your insights and all the knowledge that you shared with our community. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.